Thank you for listening to this message from the pulpit of New Grace Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. We hope the message you are about to hear is a blessing to you and your family. All right, Nehemiah chapter number 10. This morning, we're going we're gonna to jump right back into the book of Nehemiah. We've taken several weeks off. Uh, of course, we had a, a missionary speaker. We had uh, Lord's Supper. And then, of course, we had Easter. And we took two weeks to, to, to really focus on Easter. So we've, we've been gone from Nehemiah for a while. And we're going to jump right back into it today for one week. And that's it. One more week of Nehemiah, and then we're moving on. But I wanted to finish on chapter 10 because after this... Uh, message. We're really going to begin a new series uh, on generosity, uh, not just generosity. I know, I know what you're thinking. Man, here comes another preacher preaching about money. I hate preaching about money. I really do. It makes me feel icky uh, and, and greedy, which I'm not, uh, but it is needed. But it's not just generosity with your paychecks or your, your money. It's generosity with your life, how to live a generous life that honors Christ and brings others to him. But we're going to start that next week because generosity is the mark of a Christ follower. Uh, but this morning we're going to start in chapter number nine of Nehemiah and we're going to finish up in chapter 10. Now to remind you because again we've been gone for about a month from the book of Nehemiah, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah really tell the story of God, uh, not Israel returning to Jerusalem, but Israel returning to a relationship with God. He sends them back uh, through Ezra to rebuild uh, the temple, or Zerubbabel to rebuild the temple, and then Ezra to kind of reestablish the worship. And then Nehemiah comes later uh, to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem and establish the gates. And really, it's not just a, a remodeling project or a, re, a rebuilding project that they're trying to just build, get the city back to uh, a place of security and structural soundness, but they're, 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 it is God restoring the people back to him. And in chapter 9, Nehemiah in uh, one of the longest prayers in the Bible, uh, he, he tells the story through this prayer about how God, since, uh, his, since the creation of, of, of the world, really since the establishment of the nation of Israel, how God has been working nonstop to restore his people back to him, to restore them from sin and disobedience. It's not just something he's doing in Nehemiah, and it's something he's going to do after the book of Nehemiah, because the nation of Israel is a lot like us. Uh, say, what do you mean? They're stupid. They, they, they continue to do the same things that get them in trouble time and time again. God continues to, to uh, bring stuff on their life and to bring problems in their life to, to remind them of their need for him. They are constantly repenting of their sin, coming back to him and reestablishing their relationship. And then, of course, they mess up again. And so you look at them and you're like, man, they are just they are so dumb. They don't get it. But then I look at my life and I think, man, I am so dumb. I don't get it. Uh, so when you look at the Bible in the Old Testament and you see the nation of Israel, that's really us. Uh, but for the thousand, last thousand years of the history of Israel, God has been working to redeem them and restore them back to a relationship with him. Of course, it started way back in Exodus where God comes to Moses and uses Moses to deliver the nation of Israel out of slavery, 400 years of slavery in Egypt. He delivers them through, uh, through Moses and through the plagues and the Passover and all those incredible miracles uh, God does. And he, he frees them from slavery. But it doesn't stop there. They don't cross the Red Sea, turn around, see the Red Sea crash onto the Egyptian army, and God said, okay, you're free from slavery. Good luck. 
He doesn't stop there. God says, okay, that's, that's step one. Now you're free from slavery. Now let's continue to work on your relationship with, with me. So God takes them to Mount Sinai. He gives them the Ten Commandments. He feeds them. He waters them. See, God's saving work. Salvation doesn't stop with just saving us from, from eternity in hell. Salvation is more than just God keeping us from something. It is restoring us to him. Restoring us for something. Not just saving us from sin and hell and the grave, but saving us to a relationship with him for something greater than ourselves. See, God wants to restore us to the abundant life that he has promised us. It only comes from living obedience and obedience to his word. Now, when I say the abundant life, again, it kind of makes me icky because of the prosperity gospel. People say, hey, if you, if you get saved, then you'll never have any problems. If anyone ever tells you following Jesus means never having problems, they are a liar. Because Jesus said, if you follow me, it's going to be rough. You're going to face persecution. He said, take up your cross and follow me. Now to us, a cross now, it's a, it's a, a decorative symbol. We wear it on our, on our necklaces. We, we put it, you know, we, we have it hanging on our walls, and it's just something to look at to remind us. But in Jesus' day, the cross was a, a severe punishment. It was pain and humiliation and suffering. It's like us. It's like if y'all came in one morning, I had an electric chair up here as a decoration. Nobody wants to hang an electric chair on their, on their, 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 uh, their wall. No one wants to wear a noose around their neck as a symbol of grace and mercy. That's what the cross is to us, but to them it was an execution device. So when Jesus says, take up your cross, he's saying, hey, it's going to be rough. It's going to be difficult. You're going to face rejection, humiliation, pain, suffering. But if you follow me and you walk with me, he says, I will give you the abundant life. I promise. Again, not prosperity and freedom of pain, but a life of joy, a life of meaning, a life of purpose. And that is a life that only comes to a life totally surrendered to him and his word and living in obedience to God. After God saves Israel from slavery, he leads them to Mount Sinai to give them something. So look real quick in chapter 9. We're going to start reading in verse number 13. Again, we're just going to be real quick in chapter 9, then we're going to focus mainly in chapter 10. But chapter 9, verse number 13, the <clears throat> Bible says, Thou camest down also upon, upon Mount Sinai, and spakest with them from heaven, and gavest them right judgments, and true laws, and good statutes, and commandments, and madest known unto them the holy Sabbath, and commandest them precepts, statutes, and laws by the hand of Moses thy servant. See, God didn't just lead them out of Egypt, out of slavery, and say, okay, you're free now, live your life however you want to. He led them out of slavery, and he gave them something. He gave them, look what he says in verse 13, thou gave, gave us uh, right judgments, true law, good statutes and commandments. God didn't just save them and then give them permission to live their life however they wanted to. That's how a lot of people view salvation. That's how a lot of people want salvation to be. God, I'm going to put my trust in you so you can save me from hell. 
Lord, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to believe that you sent your son to live a life I couldn't live. You died on the cross in my place. You absorbed the wrath of God for me. You were buried and rose again three days later. I'm going to put my faith and trust in that to save me and give me eternity in heaven and take me out of hell. But Lord, let me live my life the way I want to live. That's not what salvation is. Salvation isn't a ticket out of hell and you can live your life wherever you want to live. God said, yes, I saved you from that, but I saved you to me. I saved you to right judgments, to good commandments, to pure statutes. True salvation, true restoration is impossible without the authority of the Word of God over our lives. Again, God doesn't just save us from something. He saves us for something. Nehemiah said he saves us for right judgments, for true laws, for good statutes and commandments. True freedom isn't found in having no rules, no laws, but in having right rules and right laws. There was a movie that was released several years ago, and just right off the bat, I have never seen it. I never intend to see it, but I know the concept. The movie is The Purge. If you've seen it, I'm not judging you. I'm not saying, oh, you're wicked. I'm just saying that's not my, that's not my type of movie. I don't really care for that. Uh, but if you watch it, great. I know the concept of the movie. But I know some of you guys mentioned that movie, and you're like, I can't believe you watched that. So I'm not judging you. You don't judge me. I've not seen it, but I know the concept. The concept is for one night, there are no laws. You can do whatever you want to do. So you want to go, you know, shoplifting? That's not shop. You can just go to Walmart and grab what you want off the shelf. You want to go 90 miles an hour down the expressway? Now, I know people do now anyway. But then you can do it and not worry about getting a ticket. Now, they take it to the extreme, and so murder is legal. So that neighbor that you just hate, he keeps blowing his grass clippings on your sidewalk. One, night, one day a year, you can kill him. Nobody's going to do it. Murder him. You're fine. Nobody's going to punish you. Now, the problem with that is the movie begins, again, I haven't seen the movie, but the concept, that when the purge starts, everybody locks themselves in their secure home. They've got security systems and gates and fences, and so they're, they're, they're safe and sound in their home, protecting themselves from no laws. That's not freedom. Freedom isn't, well, anybody can do what they want to do, but to keep myself safe, I have to lock myself in my house. That's not freedom. So freedom isn't found in no rules and no laws. It is found in right laws and right rules. It's not having no master, but it is serving the true master. It's, freedom isn't not doing what you want, but it is being free to do what God commands you to do. Now, Nehemiah chapter 9, it shows us that while God patiently and repeatedly gave Israel these right commandments, his people, which is us, repeatedly reject his word. Repeatedly ignore his commandments. Repeatedly do what they want to do instead of what he's called them to do. So for Israel's entire history, they've rebelled against God's word and they've suffered because of it. But while they're suffering, they cry out to God and God shows mercy. He sends a a savior and judges and, and warriors and armies and he, he restores them back to a right relationship with him. And so they, they go through this cycle of rebellion 
and discipline and mercy over and over again for a thousand years. And it sounds a lot like our story. How many times have we disobeyed God's law, but God's given us mercy? God's forgiven us time. Even when we come to him for the same thing over and over and over and over again. You know, if April did the same thing against me over and over and over again, if April cheated on me, she never has, uh, that I know of, and you know I don't know of it because she's alive today, but if April cheated on me and I caught her, she apologized, we worked it out, and I forgave her, and we, went, we, we, we did whatever we needed to do, and we, we stayed together. That's a wonderful story of mercy. She did it over and over and over again. I'm going to eventually say, you know what? I don't think you're really that sorry. So I'm moving on. But really, if April cheated on me, she'd be dead out of the in prison, so don't worry about that. Uh, but anyway, uh, but God, no matter how many times I go to God, and I say to God, God, I've committed adultery on you. I've put idols above you. I've put my own desires above you. I've rejected what you've said. How many times I come over and over and over again, God's always faithful to forgive me, to cleanse me, and to show me mercy. Now, now that we're reminded of their failure and his mercy, now that Nehemiah has, has, repeated, has said, look, God, we failed you over and over and over again, and you've been merciful to us over and over and over again, Look at chapter 9, verse 38, and we're going to see their response. So flip over to, to chapter number, uh, we're still in chapter 9, but flip over to, chapter, to verse 38. So Nehemiah has prayed, said, God, we've, we've rebelled, you've forgiven, we've rebelled, you've forgiven, over and over again. Verse 38, and because of all this, we'll make a sure covenant and write it in our princes, Levites, and priests' seal unto it. So what they say is, God... Because of our rebellion over and over and over again, and your mercy over and over and over again, we are going to make a covenant with you. We are going to, and they, they say they're going to sign it. Here's what they're saying, God, we are going to make a contract with you. We're going to sign our names to it. We're going to, we're going to agree to, to, to obey you. We're going to agree to do these things. And God, we're going to sign our name to it. And it's going to be incredible. And then in chapter 10, they, the, the, they list 84 names of the men and the leaders who signed their name to this covenant. We are not going to read the names because I don't feel like being laughed at. All right. So for the first 27 verses are just 84 names. If you want to read the names, they're important. Say, why are they important? How do you know they're important? Because they're in the Bible. Well, we're going to skip them. Uh, you can read it on your own time. Uh, so the first 27 verses list 84 names uh, of the people. And these, these are representatives of the nation. that are, And the entire nation is making a firm covenant with God. So let's look at what they're committing to. Uh, starting in chapter 10, verse number 28. <clears throat> and the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the porters, the singers, the Nephilims, and all they, had, they, all they that had separated themselves from the people of the lands unto the law of God, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, everyone having knowledge and having understanding, they clave to their brethren, their nobles, and entered into a curse and into an oath to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe all 
that the commandments of the Lord our God and his judgments and his statutes. So the, the 84 names are just representatives of the nation, but the entire nation, the entire everyone who is in Jerusalem, they are making this covenant with God. They're saying, God, this is what we're going to do. We, we are so thankful for your mercy. We are so thankful for your grace and your, your forgiveness and how, how no matter how many times we've rejected you, you've always worked to restore us. And God, because of that, we are going to dedicate ourselves to obey the law that you gave to Moses on Mount Sinai. They are committing to obey the laws that they had Rejected. You know, a lot of times we as believers, we kind of make this commitment, usually the first of the year. We'll, we'll say, God, I'm going I'm to start doing this more. I know, you're, I know you say I should read your Bible, so Lord, this year I'm going to commit to read, your, read my Bible. Lord, I know you say in your word I'm supposed to, you know, pray daily. So God, this year I'm going I'm to have a prayer time. Lord, I know you say I'm supposed to, to, to memorize scriptures this year. I'm going to work on memorizing. And we make this commitment, we write it down, and Kind of, or keep it to ourselves, or just, you know, what if, you know, now you, you put it on Facebook. But, you know, uh, normally we just keep it to ourselves and say, God, I'm going to do this. Or maybe you have a besetting sin, something you're struggling with, uh, an emotion. Maybe you're dealing with jealousy or, or greed or, or lust. Maybe you have a, a sin you just can't seem to conquer. And so you say, God, I'm going to commit myself to not doing that. I'm going to commit myself to not doing that sin. And that's not what they're doing. Like they are kind of, that is something similar to what they're doing, but they're, they're going a little bit differently. They are not just writing it down and putting it in their pocket. They are writing it down and publishing it publicly for everyone to see. They are making themselves accountable to the covenant they're making with God. Shows how serious they are about obeying God. Then look at verse number 29 again. <clears throat> it says, They clave to their brethren, their nobles, and entered into a curse. They aren't just saying, God, we're going to do better. God, we're going to obey your word. They are making a contract under the threat of God's judgment. They say, God, we are going to obey your word. We're going to obey your commandments. We're going to obey everything you've commanded us to do. And God, if we don't, we freely and willingly accept any judgment you put on us. See, God is a God of covenants. Every promise God makes in the Bible is a covenant with us. God says, I will do this if you do that. In Genesis, God made a covenant with Abraham to make him a great nation, to bless the entire world through him, to bring the Messiah through his lineage. And God was so serious about this covenant that he told Abraham, says, Abraham, I want you to take a bull, take a cow, and cut it in half. And look, when you think of cutting a cow in half, I, I'm sorry, I don't really think about cutting a cow in half. But if I say we're going to cut a cow in half, you think probably, you know, cut the head from the tail and just right down the middle. That's not what Abraham did. He cut it lengthwise. So all the way down and put it on two sides. So you got half a cow here, half a cow there. He said, cut the cow in half. Now, can you imagine how bloody that is? How gory that is? I mean, Abraham now is, is more than likely covered in blood. There's blood all over the ground. There's guts everywhere. 
And God said, okay, now that you've done that, walk through that cow. And he walked with Abraham through that cow. That was something they did. Oh, now, they didn't usually use a cow. So they used to use a smaller animal with people. But God was making a point. And, and God was saying, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make this agreement with you, Abraham. And I'm going to bless the world. I'm going to give you a, a mighty land. I'm going to give you a land that flows with milk and honey. I'm going to make you a mighty nation. I'm going to give you many children. I'm going to bless the world through you. And we're going to walk through this cow together. And if I don't keep my word, you can do to me what you did to this cow. That's how serious God was taking it. God saying, Abraham, if I don't keep my word, you can kill me. Now, we all know, well, God, Abraham can't kill God. That's the point. Abraham's saying, God, God's saying, Abraham, I'm going I'm to keep my word no matter what. I'm going to keep my covenant to you no matter what. So this, is, this ceremony was a bloody gruesome symbol of how passionate God was to keep his word. And so that's what Israel's doing. Israel's saying, God, you always keep your word to us. So we're, we're entering into a covenant and a curse. If we don't keep our word, send your judgment on us. Send your punishment to us. We are going to live how you want us to live. This was not just a kind of a recommitment to God. They were specifically making this covenant with God. But in this chapter, they, get, they tell God, we're going to obey you in three specific areas of our life. We're going to go to those three areas this morning. The first commitment, they commit to obey God in their marriage. Look at verse 30. And that we would not give our daughters unto the people of the land, nor take their daughters for our sons. Now they are committing to God to obey his specific commands regarding marriage. God had told them way back since Abraham that they were not to marry Gentiles. Now, this wasn't a, a racial purity issue. God wasn't trying to keep the race pure because if you know your Bible, you know in the, in the lineage of Jesus, there's Rahab and there's Ruth, both Gentile women, both who, according to Scripture, were not allowed to be married to Israelites, but they were because they gave their hearts to God. They were saved. They fully committed to God, and they accepted him as their Savior, knowing he would send the Messiah. And so they, were, they became Jewish by religion, and so God, God allowed them in. So this isn't a racial purity issue. This was to keep the followers of God completely dedicated to him. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says this, <clears throat> The wife is bound by the law as long as her husband lives. But if her husband dies, she is at liberty to be married to, be married to whomever she will, but only in the Lord. Now, that was talking about women who were married to unbelievers at first, and they have to stay married to them. But then he goes, hey, if that guy dies, not giving you permission to kill your husband, women, all right? Not saying that. Uh, but if her husband dies, he goes, look, women, they can marry anybody they want to marry as long as they're believers. See, one of Israel's biggest problems came from marrying unbelievers. They would marry these Gentiles, these Amorites, these Moabites, these Hittites, these Hizites, these Perizzites. They'd marry all the ites. And over time, they would start worshiping their gods. Over time they would start believing their gods, and they would 
their heart would grow cold towards the true God, and they would, they would uh, start serving idols. It happened over and over. even happened to Solomon. The wisest man to ever live. Married over a thousand women, most of them for you know, political purposes. Historians believe that most of the, his thousand wives, he never even met you know, the majority of them. Uh, because how could you? Man, you can't even spend one night a year with a wife. I, that's a thousand mother-in-laws. I don't know what that guy was thinking. Why is my foot? But he, most of these wives were just political marriages. But the Bible says at the end of his life, his wives had turned his heart to their God. The wisest man who ever lived married unbelievers, and they turned his heart from God. It could happen. And so this is a warning that God's given them. And they're saying, look, we're not... And now, this sounds very restrictive, but it really gives, gives freedom. God's not trying to steal your happiness. He's trying to give you freedom. Connor, I want you to come here. Come on. You're my illustration. There's a reason... God warned Israel, and it's in the New Testament too. It's not just an Israelite, you know, thing. It's in the New Testament too, where believers are not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. We are not to marry unbelievers, and there's a reason for that. All right, Connor, stand up here. On the chair. On the chair. All right. Pull me up. Come on. Do, do what you're told. Come on, pull me up. Use both hands. Pull, work hard. You're strong. Come on. Get me up there. Get an arm. Pull me up. Oh, Do it. I All right. You suck at this. All right. No, stand there. Pull me down. Is it easier to pull me down or up? Now, you didn't really try. I should get Majesty up here to, to try. He'd actually try. Try to prove he was something he ain't. But, uh... It's easier to pull someone down than pull someone up. And I've known a lot of, a lot of people uh, who are like, man, I know, I know he's not saved, I know she's not saved, but man, I can, I can change them. I can. You might. The Bible does say in the New Testament that a, a husband can be saved through his wife, not, not because of her, but through her testimony. So it, you can. It's possible. But man, it's hard. And so God is warning us, hey, be very careful you allow into your life, who you allow to influence you. It's a strong warning to those who are not yet married. But here, if you are married, this isn't, you know, I'm not saying, well, if you're married and he's not saved or she's not saved, you can divorce her. No, 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 no. Not giving you that freedom. God's not giving you that freedom. But it's a, if you're a married believer, God's not giving you this permission. There are a lot of commands that God has given us in marriage. There are uh, in Ephesians 5, God tells us that husbands and wives are to submit to one another, to prefer one another. We, you know, especially we men, we like to harp on wives, submit to your own husbands. Earlier in the chapter, it says, husbands, submit to your wives. It's not, you know, honey, what would you have me do today? It's preferring. I'm going to put her needs above my needs. She's going to put my needs above her needs. She doesn't, but she should. Uh, She's going to, you know, when I get home and I'm tired and exhausted, I, as soon as I lay down, she's like, honey, can you go to the store for me? No, I cannot go to the store for you. Uh, but anyway, she's going to put my needs above her needs. I'm going to put her needs above my needs. It says that we are to submit to one another. Also says that I'm to love her like Christ loved me. That's a sacrificial love. Jesus gave everything for me, so I'm to give everything for her. I'm to prefer. I'm going to put her needs, 
her desires, her wants, her, her first, everything for her. Colossians 5 says that husbands are not to be harsh to their wives. Now, April's not going to talk about how I always obey this. I'm never harsh to her. Uh, one day, I'm never in my life have I been harsh to her. But the Bible says I'm not to be harsh to her. First Peter 13, and I struggle with that. This one. First Peter says I'm to be patient and understanding when she's struggling. I struggle with that. That's a command God's given. Don't shake your head at me. But that's a command God's given me. Hebrews 13 says that we're to keep the marriage bed undefiled and keep our marriage pure sexually in thought and deed. So I think sometimes we can get away with, well, I'm not actually committing adultery. I'm just looking at websites I shouldn't look at. I'm not committing adultery physically. I'm just having thoughts that aren't right. No, God says I'm to keep my marriage bed pure in thought and deed. 1 Corinthians 7 says that I'm to keep... Uh, that we're to keep our marriage bed pure by not denying each other the gift of intimacy. We're commanded to be faithful, to be honest, to be respectful of our spouses. And Israel's saying we are going to commit to obey every command God has given us regarding our marriages. Can we commit to obey God's commands regarding our marriages? Second commitment that they make to God, we're going to commit to obey God in our rest. Look at verse 31. And if the people of the land bring ware of any victuals on the Sabbath day to sell, that we would not buy it of them on the Sabbath or on the holy day, and that we would leave the seventh year and the execute exaction of every debt. Rest is vital. Not just physical rest. But look, we, we need physical rest. We can, we can get run down and get exhausted. Like lately... This week wasn't so bad, but the last several, about, the last about a month, you know, I've had weddings and funerals and remodeling at the house and have to fix April's van. and just It's every day it's something. Every day I'm, I'm having to do something. I went home the other day, and I told the whole, I got the whole family together. I said, look, for the next 48 hours, nothing in this house can break. I'm tired of fixing stuff. You know what happened? In less than 24 hours, something broke, and I had to fix it. But I'm just like, you know, can, can we please go a day with nothing having to be done? But of course, no. We, we need rest, but we also need spiritual rest. Our spiritual health is vital. Even God rested after he created everything. Not because he was tired, but he was teaching us a lesson. They are committing to obey God's command to keep the Sabbath day holy. But they're doing more than that. God, we're going we're gonna to obey your Sabbath command to let the field rest every seven years. We're going to obey your Sabbath, your command of the Sabbath to release or to forgive all debt every seven years. And I wish Penny Mac would do that. Every seven years, just go, oh, your house is paid off. We, for, we forgive that debt, but they don't. <laughs> they're not good believers. But what they're committing to is every seven years, the fields would, they would let the fields and the vineyards rest from planting and sowing and harvesting. They would forgive every debt. And that cost them dearly. If you didn't plant wheat one year, you didn't have bread that year. If you didn't plant grapes one year, you didn't have wine that year. You didn't plant olive vineyard that year, you didn't have olives that year. And so they're like, we're, we're going to take the year off from sowing and harvesting. We're going to let the field rest. So it cost them dearly 
but they were trusting God to take care of them. They say, God, we're going to obey you. We're going to forgive the debt every seven years. We're going to let our fields rest every seven years, and we're going to trust you to provide for us. We're going to trust you to take care of us. It was a commitment to obey God even if it was hard, even if it cost them. This is probably one of the most disobeyed commandments of God's people. So we got the Ten Commandments, but that Sabbath rest in there, that's in there. We forget that. Well, I'm not lying. I'm not cheating. I'm not committing adultery. I'm not murdering. I'm not stealing. I'm not doing all these things. Okay, but are we, are we observing and obeying the Sabbath rest? How many of us have set apart a day? Not, and you can't say today. That's different. Worship and Sabbath are different, and we'll get into that one day. But set apart a day to specifically remember what God has done for you. A day to trust and remember his provision, remember what he has done. You have a day that looks different than every other day. A day that looks different from unbelievers. Last year in our family, we started observing Monday as our Sabbath day. And we've, we've kind of drifted away from it the last couple of weeks. And me and April talked, uh, and we're going to get back to it uh, this Monday. So the kids are going to be real happy uh, that said we're going back to no technology after 6. But, you know, we, we, had a sab- we have our Sabbath day, and I'll get up on Monday, and I make breakfast. And, you know, we have a big breakfast and we'll eat together and then we'll, we'll kind of reset the house and stuff during the day. And then at 6 o'clock we have a meal together. Again, I cook dinner. Why am I cooking on Sunday, on Monday? Okay, we got we to gotta talk about that. We need to renegotiate. I just realized that I'm doing all the work here. You're having a Sabbath rest and I'm not. Uh, but I'll, I usually cook because we have meat. I'm, I'm better at meat than her. And so I'll cook dinner and we'll have a dinner together and then, then we'll, we'll do devotions together and we'll play a game together and just spend time as a family quieter it's just different everything's off tv's off technology's off and so it's just it's a different day there's nothing extra special about it you know we're not you know worshiping you know or sacrificing animals or anything uh it's just it's a different day that's for us to remember god and us to focus on each other and so we need a day that we could just rest we have to have a day where we spend more time in god's word spend more time focusing on him god gave us the sabbath for rest for enjoyment, for worship, for healing, and for restoration. Look, everybody in our culture, everyone's impacted by anxiety. We're, we're hurried, we're rushed. We get, I, and I have no idea with it because I, I get so frustrated when I'm stuck behind a car going the speed limit. Not under the speed limit, the speed limit. I'm like, the speed limit's 40, you're going 40, what is wrong with you? That's just a suggestion. At least go 50. But when someone's going exactly, it, it, it frustrates me so much. And I don't have anywhere. I'm not like if I don't get there in time, the world's going to explode. I was like, you're in my way. We are a hurried culture. We need to take time to rest. They said we're going to obey God with the rest. And the third commitment, they committed to obey God with their money. Look at verse 32. We'll read from 32 down, to, uh, starting in verse 32. Also, we made ordinances for us to charge ourselves yearly the third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread and for the continual meat offering, and for the continual burnt offering of the Sabbaths of the new moons, for the set feast and for the holy things, and for the sin offerings to make an atonement for Israel, and for all the work of the house of our God. They committed to obey God with their giving so that his ministry could continue. In, in verse number uh, 
32 where it says we also have to charge ourselves. The word charge there in Hebrew can literally be translated obligation. They're saying, God, we're going to take on this obligation. We are going to obey you with this obligation. They were taking on themselves. Now, what they're talking about, the third of a shekel, it's a temple tax. It's about $12 in today's money. So it wasn't a, it wasn't a whole lot. Uh, it was a nominal amount of money given yearly to care for the needs of the temple. And it wasn't, again, it wasn't a huge uh, amount of money, but they were committing to give faithfully to God's house. And look, here's the thing. I know in, in, our, in our church, we have people from all different socioeconomic uh, places and, and abilities. Not everyone is able to give huge amounts of money to ministry. And that, that, that would matter if God cared about your money. God doesn't care about your money. God doesn't need your money. It's not about the amount of money that you're giving. It's about the amount of your heart that's given to God. That's why Jesus in the New Testament, when he sees the, he's watching people give money, and these great wealthy men are coming up there giving great amounts of money, and then the widow comes up. She throws in two mites. It's like, it's like a half a cent today. She's not even given a whole penny. And Jesus said she's given more than everybody else. They gave out of their abundance. She gave out of her poverty. She gave out of her heart. She said she gave more because she gave out of her poverty. She was trusting God to take care of her. See, God doesn't want your paycheck. God wants your heart. Look at verse 35. And to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of our trees year by year unto the house of the Lord, also the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstlings of our herds and of our flocks to bring to the house of our God and to the priests that minister in the house of our God, and that we should bring the first fruits of our dough and our offerings and the uh, fruits of all manner of trees, of wine and of oil, unto the priests in the chambers of the house of our God, and the tithes of our ground unto the Levites, and the same Levites might have the tithes in all the cities of our tillage, and the priests and the son of Aaron shall be with the Levites when the Levites shall take tithes, and the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes into the house of our God, to the chamber, unto the treasure house. Now, notice the repetition there. The first fruits, the firstborn, the tithe unto God. They are committing to obey God regarding his command about their tithes. They were committing to, they, they were not committing to give God whatever's left after their bills were paid. They weren't saying, God, we'll, we'll take care of everything else. And, you know, once everything's taken care of, once we've paid our taxes, once we've, you know, expanded our, 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 our deck, and once we've painted the kitchen, and once we've, you know, paid off that chariot, and once we've done all that, if there's anything left, we'll give it to you. They're saying, God, we're going to bring you the first fruits. We're going to bring you the first 10% of everything you've blessed us with and trust you to take care of us. They were committing to give God the tithe first and trust him to provide, with, or provide for them with the rest. So, you know, most of us, we've been in church a while. Your tithe is 10% of your income that is given back to God. I say given back because God gave it to you in the first place. God's, everything we have is given to us from God. So God said, I'm going to give you 100%. And I just ask you to give me back 10% so that you, and then trust me to provide for you with the 90. But there's more than that. Look how the chapter ends in verse 39. For the children of Israel and the children of Levi shall bring the offering of corn and the new wine and the oil into the chambers where all the vessels of the sanctuary and the priests and the minister and the porters and the singers. And we will not forsake the house of 
our God. They were committing to give their first and best because they didn't want to neglect the ministry of God. Now, there are a lot of arguments uh, about whether God commands us to tithe in the New Testament, and spoiler alert, he does, and we'll get into that in the next couple weeks, But because the, the tithe is pre-law. Abraham tithed to God before the law was ever given to Moses. So the tithe isn't like, well, it's only in the law, and God's, Jesus abolished the law. No, it's pre-law, it's law, and it's post-law. Paul tells us to tithe in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 16. Now concerning the collection for the saints, if I have given instruction to the churches of Galatia, so even you must do on the first day of the week, let him lay in store as God has prospered him. Like in Nehemiah, this isn't about God needing your money, but God wanting your heart. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. And Paul reminds us that it's based on what God has prospered you. God's given you a little, then tithe a little. God's given you a lot, then give a lot. That's, a, that's how God expects us to live. God always gives to us first and asks us to give back to him, trusting that he will take care of us no matter what. And what Paul gets to later, and we'll see this later on in, the week, in a couple weeks, in, in light of what God has given us. Say, what has God given me? Well, take away the fact that you're living in 2023 in America. You're free to, to worship. You're, you're free to, to do whatever you want to do, to live your life how you want to live. You're, you're free to, to come to church without fear of persecution. We live in a time where if you want to have a hot shower uh, and everything's working in your house, you just turn a knob and water comes out. We've got electricity. Now we can just turn lights on. Uh, we have, you know, we all got cell phones and, and internet, and we got all this stuff. We, we, we live in, in one of the, the, the best times in history. Now, look, I know socially it's, it's terrible. I know economically it ain't so great. But look, technolo technologically-wise, man, we got it made. Now, of course, you know, politics stink and people stink and everything else. But, hey, your phones are great, right? I mean, but despite of what, you know, we take away all that stuff that God's given us. God sent his son to live a perfect life because you couldn't. He sent his son to die on a cross for your sins, to absorb the wrath of God for your sins, to go to hell for you so you didn't have to. He sent his son to live, to die, and to rise again to save you when you didn't even care about him. In light of him doing that for us, what could we not give to him to be a blessing? What could we not give to him to show that we trust him and we love him? The nation of Israel, in Nehemiah chapter 10, they've they finished the wall, but they recognize that God's doing more. He's doing more than just building a wall. He's restoring them back to him. He's restoring them back to a relationship with him. And so they are committing, God, we're going to live for you. God, we're going to walk with you. God, we're going to obey you. We're going to obey you in our marriages. We're going to obey you when it comes to our rest and our worship. And God, we're going to obey you in our finances. And these are the three probably most misunderstood and most ignored commands of God. Will we be willing to say, God, whatever you call me to do, I'll obey you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for listening to this message from New Grace Baptist Church. For more information about New Grace, check out our website at www.reachingroanoke.com.